0: Our reading today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 39. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a the spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, Happy Easter. Um, We're looking at this section of, of Luke 24, and Jesus asks these kind of questions. About doubt. Um, Francis Bacon says this. He says, If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he will end in certainties. Stanislaw Stanislaw Lewinowski, I don't even know, that's my best guess at that last name, um, said this. He says, To believe with certainty, we must begin with doubting. And my favorite, uh, uh, expression of uh, around doubt is is from Vaclav Havel. He says, isn't it the moment of most profound doubt that gives birth to new certainties? Perhaps hopelessness is the very soil that nourishes human hope. Perhaps one could never find a sense in life without first experiencing its absurdity. And this is really what the experience of the resurrection is, isn't it? It's this kind of mixture of doubts. And so if you're here this morning um, as more of a doubter of the whole resurrection, of which, uh, you know, there's probably a scale of us here this morning, right? Some of us came in this morning, he is risen, he's risen indeed, let's do this. Um, you know, you're ready to worship, couldn't wait to get here. Others are like, I'm here for more of the chocolate kind of end of, of the spectrum, um, that's okay. You are welcome here. Um, there's always people like that here. You um, uh, are always welcome. It's part of our value here that we want to be a place where we can have spiritual authenticity and honesty uh, about where we are. We don't have to act like we are faking it um, in, in any sense of the way. But also, good news, if you're uh, a little bit more of a doubter this morning, is that you're in good company. You're in good company. Um, Jesus, in this passage that we see, uh, His disciples are gathered together and he appears to them. This is after the resurrection. They were gathered together, they were talking about these things. And Jesus appears to them and says, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. And he then he asks, maybe one of the funniest questions, uh, Why are you troubled? (laughs) Now imagine you've just been to a funeral, right? Um, Most of us have probably done that, sadly. You go to the funeral. Um, and then you go down to the grave, right? We watch uh, the body uh, be lowered down into a hole. Dirt starts to be filled in. And, and at that point, we go back to the church hall, right? We go back to the hall, and everybody has their tea and those little triangle sandwiches that are, you know, requirements at funerals. And uh, we all stand around. We sit around, and, and, um, and we discuss these things. We talk about the person. We, we grieve together. Um, we may... Um, express uh, our emotions during that time. Now imagine you're there with your cup of tea, your little sandwiches, you're in a circle with your friends talking about your friend that's just passed away and they walk up to your circle and be like, hey, peace to you guys. I think being startled and scared um, is a normal reaction to that question. Is a normal reaction to that moment. Um, I would probably have more than tea running down my leg at that point. (laughs) And he asked them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? They doubted. They were troubled. They thought they had seen a ghost. Jesus, you're you're dead. The Romans crucified you. No one survives that. You were buried, put in a tomb. A Roman guard rolled big, heavy stone in front of you. I think that's a reasonable kind of reaction to some degree, is that there was doubt in their mind. And yet, Jesus' question is a legitimate question because he's not just asking random strangers. He's asking his disciples here. Remember, these are the people that were with him the last three years that saw him do incredible things, miracles, healing people, telling a raging storm to knock it off. And it did. They saw him walk on water. Peter actually walked on water. Now, this is, this is the, such an insight into the human condition. Imagine you've walked on water. I, I don't know that I would doubt. I would find it hard to think that I would doubt after that. <laughs> like, that would just be the, the, well, that just seals it up. Anything at this point, then, is, is, is plausible and possible. I don't think I would ever doubt again. And yet, and yet Peter is us, isn't he? They saw him feed 5,000, over 5,000, with just one lunch. They heard all of his teaching. The teaching that, by the way, included multiple times over, that he would die, be buried, and raise on the third day. And where were they on the third day? I mean, if you or Peter walked on water, saw all of that, I'd be like, third day, let's go. I mean, Saturday, Saturday we're just hanging out. We're just waiting. We're not sad. We're not confused. We're just waiting. Third day by the tomb. Popcorn, you know, the popcorn uh, gift. You're just sitting there waiting like, this is going to be amazing. And yet they weren't. They were afraid, had denied Jesus, ran away, were scared, were frightened, had huddled together just to support each other in this moment. Matthew, uh, in his account, says this. After Jesus had had raised from the dead, he appeared to some people, and it says, And when they saw his disciples, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. John, um, in this account that we see here in Luke, Thomas isn't there. Thomas isn't a part of them. Um, But later these disciples will go and tell Thomas, We have seen the risen Christ. This is John in John uh, 25. Uh, So other disciples told him, that is Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side where he was pierced, I will never believe. We also we, we refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. What's probably more accurate is, is to call him unbelieving Thomas. It wasn't that he doubted, he just said, I will not believe. I refuse to believe until I see the evidence. And I'm able to touch with my own hands. And so if you're a doubter here this morning, of let's just be honest, of which we all are at times, you're in good company. But full disclosure this morning, I want us to move, I want to move you from doubt to certainty this morning. Or at least further down uh, that, that track. Doubt um, in our time and, and culture has really become held up as a virtue isn't it and we just doubt everything we've just this underlying kind of sense of cynicism Um, and some of that's understandable when you know there's so much disinformation mixed in with our information and so it's easy to become a skeptic it's easy to become a, a cynic it's easy to become a doubter and yet doubt really isn't a virtue is it it's useful at times there are times when it's right to doubt and actually, that's what I want us to do this morning. I think what Jesus is doing this morning. When he asks us these questions, Jesus is asking them to doubt their doubts. Because we can say we doubt certain things, but really, the things that we doubt, we're so certain about doubting. And Jesus says, mm, I want to I create some new categories, as he always does, And I want you to doubt your doubts. And so this is really important because Romans 1, 4 says that Jesus is declared the Son of God. How? How is Jesus declared the Son of God? In the power of the resurrection. The the resurrection is really what vindicated Jesus in what, what he claimed was actually true. And so... For our time this morning, I just want to ask us two questions. And the first one is, is it true? Is it true? Can this be believed? The scriptures contend that the life of Jesus, his birth to a virgin, is true. That his miracles were actually true. They actually happened in space-time history. That his teachings were true. That his death His resurrection, (coughs) excuse me, were true. That this isn't fake news of any sort. That it can be believed. Can you have that cup underneath there? Sorry. That it can be believed. And so we see here in verse 36, Jesus stood among them. He's actually there bodily. He stood among them. And Jesus, in his questions about their doubts, invites them and us to doubt their doubts. It's interesting what Jesus does there. He engages their senses, doesn't he? And that's important because that's how we um, engage reality. That's how we know what is true. Um, We taste. We see. If you have babies, of which there's which a ton at the minute, um, that's how they experience reality, right? That's how they discover things. They touch it. They put everything in their mouth. And what does Jesus say? He says, see my hands and my feet. See my wounds, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. Got one, but thanks. This one looks nicer. I'm going to stick with this one. Um, I'm not a ghost. This is real. And I love the verse, um, he's asking these questions, and he says, and when they had seen, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is verse 40. Verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, as you would expect, right, they still can't believe it. This is just too good to be true. He says to them, "Um, have you anything to eat here? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, right? He's like, hey, guys, it's me. They can't believe it. You can see them huddling up. Is this true? I can't, I mean, they're afraid to touch him, whatever, and he's like patiently waiting there. It's been three days. He's kind of hungry. He's like, hey, um, you got anything to eat? I mean, while you're sorting stuff out and while you're kind of coming to your senses, do you mind if I grab a snack? And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And that's important, right? He wasn't a spirit. This wasn't an apparition. This was a man who, was, who still had hunger and he ate. This is important because Peter and John and these other disciples would go on to write letters um, as eyewitnesses. This is what Peter says in Second Peter 1.16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. This isn't some cleverly devised myth. We're not colluding to to create some new story. We were just there as eyewitnesses. And it's interesting, when you read the accounts of the Gospels, they're just written as historians. They write, and they don't write in a way in which you would try to write if you were inventing something or trying to create something. They just write what happened. Uh, he was hungry, and we gave him a piece of broiled fish, even in these little details. This is what John would go on to say in his letter, John, uh, John 1, 1 to 3. First John, he says, That which was from the beginning, that is Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. It was there before us and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaimed also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. This is how he opens his letter. This is why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you to just tell you what we saw, what we heard, what was made manifest before us. And why? So that you too can get in on this. That you too might have fellowship with us and with Jesus, with the Father. This is really important. They were just there as eyewitnesses. And both use this word we, we. This isn't just I, this isn't just me. It was all of us, there was a unanimous consensus among the witnesses. The eyewitnesses were there. Now, is it true? These guys were so convinced that they became martyrs. They all died terrible deaths. And so either they colluded together to die for something that they knew was not true or something actually happened and changed them to the core. You don't just die for that. You might collude and try to go along with that, but as the disciples move out even into different parts of the world, Philip executed in India. Peter dies in Rome. Others die in Jerusalem. There's only one reason to become a Christian. There's only one. The resurrection is true. That's it. That's, that's the reason that you become a, a Christian. It's that the resurrection is true. And so if you're here this morning and you're considering the claims of Jesus, of, you might have loads of questions, uh, uh, loads of legitimate questions. What about this? What about the flood? What about creation? What about the dinosaurs? What about all these other kind of things? And those are all really good and important questions, but the most important question, the que- all those questions can be set aside for a moment but the one question that cannot be set aside is, is the resurrection true? That's in which the answers to all the other questions hinge upon. Other considerations uh, that if it were true. What's interesting, the first eyewitness is, as Andrew and our call to worship this morning um, read to us was Mary Magdalene. Now we're told from the scripture and other historical sources, Mary Magdalene was into witchcraft and sorcery. Um, had seven demons. She was demon-possessed. Um, and Jesus comes and heals her um, and has an incredible, incredible, profound impact on her life. She comes to the tomb to care for the body, and it's gone. Now, if you were, if you were making this up, if you were just trying to uh, tell a story the, Mary Magdalene would be the last person that you would have as your first eyewitness. Celsus, who was a second century critic of Christianity, not a Christian, but a critic of it, he, says, he said this, he said, the fact that Mary Magdalene, of all people, is recorded as the first eyewitness proves that Christianity isn't true. Why? In those days, women wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed to be witnesses in court. They weren't seen as credible witnesses. So if you were trying to prove something and you were bringing in eyewitnesses, they wouldn't even let women be eyewitnesses in those days, which is ironic because I find women way more honest than guys do, but, uh, than guys, and that wasn't right, obviously, but if you were trying to make this credible back then, you would have a man as the first witness, maybe John. He seems like the most sensible to me out of all the, all the disciples, but it's not, Why? Why? because that's not how it happened. I love this also, just as a side, because this is so in line with Jesus' teaching and the practice of the kingdom of God. Mary, who is poor, marginalized, afflicted, plays a central role as a herald of the resurrection. What about Saul of Tarsus? We've paused our series in Acts this morning, but we've been looking at the story of the early church uh, and how it exploded, how these lives were changed because of the resurrection. Saul of Tarsus is a militant uh, 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 opponent of of Christ and the church. He's a person who has authority to actually go out and, and imprison and kill Christians. He has power, he has influence, he has wealth and a comfortable life. And then he meets the resurrected Christ. And everything changes in that moment. His whole life goes in a completely different direction. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He's the most powerful and fruitful missionary of the New Testament. He ends up writing about a third of the New Testament. But that life of authority and power and cultural influence and the comfortable life he had, he exchanges for a life of pain, of suffering, of beatings, of imprisonment, Eventually, he loses his life uh, by decapitation in Rome, loses societal power and influence. Why do you make that exchange? This wasn't someone who was poor and thought, this is a good story that's going to end up, end up with me with a, a good life. I'm going to better myself because of this. It was the opposite. Why does Saul do that? Why does he just give it all up? Risk his life and his health And eventually die for this if it isn't true. It's because he met the resurrected Christ. And then he would go on then to write about this in 1 Corinthians 15. uh, 15. He says this, he says, for I delivered to you, this is now him uh, as a missionary of the gospel of Jesus. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's doing what John did. did, He's doing what Peter did. He's like, I'm just giving to you what what I saw, what I know, what I received. I'm just passing that on as a messenger. What was that? What was of first importance to Paul? He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Let's just pause there for a second because this is another evidence of this. All throughout the Old Testament, if you were at our Good Friday uh, service, we looked at some of this. All throughout the Old Testament, different prophets in different time periods that didn't even, didn't even live there in the same time. All throughout the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, all of those being fulfilled in Jesus and culminating in his death and resurrection. The odds of that happening, of 300 different prophecies of the Old Testament, all being fulfilled in one person, is the odds of one in 84 with 100 zeros after it. Statistically, the evidence is overwhelming. And so, this is what he says uh, that Christ died for, for our sins in accordance with those scriptures that, we're, that we foretold was going to happen, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this is important because um, this is the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, and they didn't see it there, they misunderstood which is why when Jesus is resurrected in, in, in an earlier part of this chapter, he meets some disciples along the way after his, he's resurrected. And they don't recognize him just the way uh, Mary didn't at first. I don't know, Jesus is you know, kind of doing a Jedi mind trick kind of thing there and he's disguising himself. He's, he hasn't opened their eyes to who he is yet. And he says, it says, starting with the law of Moses and going through all of the prophets, he told them, all of those things were about himself. All of the Old Testament is really about Jesus. And so we've had clues about who he is and what he would do, primarily his death and resurrection, as our redemption in according with the scriptures. It says, he goes on then, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most most of whom are still alive. Go ask them. Over 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. Now these letters were circulated, they were made public. Surely the detractors of Christ and Rome would have actually went and and go, no, actually those people don't exist, but they did. And then he goes on to say, he says this, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in, in your sins. He 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 says, if if Christ isn't raised, then we as Christians, as Christ followers, are the most pitiful people on earth. We are to be most pitied, which is absolutely true. Imagine doing all the stuff that Christianity has done over the last two thousand years, all for nothing, all built on a lie, all built on a myth. It would be pitiful. But he says, no, these people are still living. Go and ask. And so the resurrection is, is faith based, yes, right? It takes faith for us to believe in that. But it's not just faith based, it's not blind faith. It's, it's faith that rests on a mountain of evidence. No body was ever produced, multiple eyewitnesses, changed disciples, and the experience of billions of people since then, of whom you are counted amongst if you're a Christian. Right for, for those of us that are Christians, the words that we sang are not just words to a song. These experiences that we read aren't just the experiences of other people. These are our testimonies. It's why we sang them. It's why we received the Apostles' Creed. I believe these things. Why? Because they're not just because I'm told to believe them, but because experientially they're true in my life. Simon Greenleaf, who is a distinguished uh, Harvard professor of law, helped, helped establish the Harvard Law School. He wrote the treatise on the law of evidences. This is still considered by legal scholars the greatest volume ever written on the use of evidence to verify historical events. And Simon Greenleaf set out to disprove the resurrection because he thought it was a hoax, he thought it was a myth. And when he was done with all of his resources, all of his his uh, t- techniques, and all the things that uh, he still to this day are used to verify historical facts when he was done he says that there was more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in history he set out to disprove it and came away a believer this happens over and over again with great thinkers and minds who are intellectually honest with themselves cs lewis who's an atheist uh, from Belfast, who who started off, he said, "I was angry at a God for not existing," and eventually his friend uh, J.R.R. Tolkien challenges him on that, challenges him to actually use his intellectual prowess. And C.S. Lewis, at the end of his discovery, becomes a fervent follower of Jesus. There's been plenty of scientists, and we don't have the time today to go into all of these things. Um, Some even in this room. Um, leading scientists in the medical field at Queens who say, no, science and faith are not at odds with each other. Now, sometimes there are Christians who mis- misrepresent things to make it seem like they're at odds. But all truth is God's truth. If it's actually true in nature, then it can't be discongruent with who God is. And if there really was a God who is powerful enough to create And we'll not get into how he did that, the technicalities of that this morning. But if he was powerful enough to create the world, would he not be powerful enough to suspend his own laws for a virgin birth? To suspend his own laws for the resurrection? This is what Jesus did with his miracles. They were there to demonstrate the power of God. They were supernatural. They were outside of nature. Why? Because that's who God is. He stands outside of space-time. He stands outside of the laws of physics. He's other than these things and so I I want to just gently ask us this morning if you're a doubter here this morning is the main thing that makes us pause from buying into this is it truly intellectual is it truly intellectual we didn't have time to unpack all this today and there are lots of great books and resources out there if you really want to go down that line of evidence and discovery um, we can help you do that for sure not trying to sweep any of this under the rug or say that uh, uh, an intellectual approach to this isn't important. Of course it is. Our intellect and our will are both connected. But my guess is for most of us, I would just want to gently ask, is it really, is, is it really the intellectual hurdles that are the main obstacle? Or are they more volitional? Is it really more of our will? Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he claims to be. And if that's true, he has absolute claim over our lives. And that is the scary part, right? That, that's really, I think, the main thing that, that is the hurdle for us to overcome. It changes everything. It changes our lives. It requires something of us. And that requirement's really broken into three parts. One, that we actually have to admit who we are it's not just admitting who God is, it's admitting who we are, that I'm actually broken, that I'm actually sinned, that, 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 I, that I sinned, that, that I've actually gone um, against God's purposes and plans, that I've been disobedient to that. We have to renounce our pride in that. And thirdly, we have to surrender our whole life to him. Now that, that might not sound like good news if you think that God is an angry God who's just up there trying to make your life miserable. But we see through the life of Jesus, we see through the teachings of Jesus that that's not the case at all. That actually his ways are good, that his ways are actually for human flourishing, that they lead us to life, that it's the ways that apart from God that eventually lead us to death and destruction, that lead us to misery. Is this merely an intellectual question? And if it is, well then that's just a nice conversation to have you know, over a glass of wine after dinner. But if it's more than that, it'll change your life. And most of us know that and don't want to change. And I think that's really the underlying reason of our doubts. And so is it true? I say, I, I say it is. I think the Bible actually says it is. The evidence is there to point that it is. And so the second question then is, well, why or who's it for? Who's it for? I like, I think it was Francis Schaeffer. Uh, His phrase was, it's for well-meaning hypocrites. Look at verse uh, 49 of, of our passage. It says, this is Jesus. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father. That's the Holy Spirit upon you. Now, who's the you there? Who's the you that he's talking about? He's talking about his followers, his people, the people of God. That would extend out to you and I. But let's just take stock of who these people are. Peter. Peter's known for being brash and arrogant. You know what Peter's real problem was? Is he he was a coward. That's why he was brash. That's why he's arrogant, swinging swords around. It's to cover up for his cowardice, because when it really mattered, he always chickened out. He denies Jesus three times. He abandons him in his hour of need. We saw Mary Magdalene and her issues already. Thomas, a willful unbeliever. Noah, right? Great man of the faith. You keep reading in that story, and afterwards he ends up naked and drunk and passed out. Abraham puts his wife in an extremely vulnerable position to save his own skin. Unprotecting husband. Jacob, a habitual liar. David commits adultery and murder. Solomon's a womanizer. Paul, as we saw, is a terrorist. All these people in the Bible. Even in our own church history. There's been a lot of good that's come out of church history. A lot of light, mission, education, art, health care, abolition of slavery, compassion, Justice. But we also have to be honest about history. There's a lot of crusading, attacking, burning, ghettoizing, flogging, lynching that happened in the name of religion as well. Some of our own kind of heroes of the faith, Calvin, Luther, involved in some pretty horrific things for people they thought were heretics. Jonathan Edwards was a slave owner. Martin Luther King Jr., serial adulterer. You're like, well, that might just be enough to disprove all this anyway then, right? I mean, if, if God is who he says he is, then why, why haven't his people kind of done better? Maybe that's enough evidence that this isn't true. But I think there's this kind of strange encouragement in that. Because if there's hope for them, if there's hope for the disciples in this room, the, the unbelieving Thomases, the cowardly Peters, the Jesus-denying Peter then there's hope for me, there's hope for you. To be human is to be a hypocrite, <laughs> right? That's the charge against the church. Churches are full of hypocrites. And at Christians, we have to, oh, well, you know, we always want to kind of get in there and start defending, and, and we just have to go, you're absolutely right. Of, well, of course, full of human people in there. Of course it's full of hypocrites, So's the stadium on Saturday. So's the hospital right now. So's anywhere else where people are gathering together. Rooms full of hypocrites. Because we all say what this is our our, our values and beliefs are, but we all fall short of even even living up to our own values <laughs> and beliefs, never mind God's standard, right? I mean, I fail my own expectations for me day after day after day. I'm not the father I want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm a hypocrite. And that's the good news of the cross. It just outs us all as needy sinners. And so this shouldn't ever be a place where we try to have it all together. We try to act like we've, we've got it all put together. We put on our Sunday best, the plastic smile. How you doing, grand? I'm grand, you're grand, I'm grand. We're all grand. We all go home and we all know we're not grand. Just bring our stuff in here because this is where we actually get to have grace applied to that. We just admit that. We receive grace. So this morning we sit here as sinners, but also as saints. We want this culture of grace to permeate in our church because that is the good news of the gospel. Not some self-righteousness, right? That Christians would ever be known as self-righteous people. Should never be. We should be the least self-righteous people. Being self-righteous is actually antithetical to the gospel. And that's why when you look at these jacked up people that Jesus said, actually, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confer my Holy Spirit upon you. I have great hope in that. Christianity is for anyone. It's the great scandal of the gospel. It's universal uh, uh, accessibility. And so we are all Peter. I'm just like Peter. We're all duplicitous. We are both simultaneously loving. And betraying Jesus. Is that not the human experience? Is that not the experience of the the Christian? And hopefully as we mature in Christ, as we love him more, the balance of those start to, to shift. But that balance will never be taken away until Christ returns. Jesus on the cross, as he's bearing all of the sin and shame of humanity, Past, present, and future cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And my question for me is, My God, why haven't you forsaken me? Because I have a million different reasons why God should forsake me. And Jesus didn't have one. But the reason that he was forsaken is so that I would never have to be, that you would never have to be. All those reasons that God should forsake me, Jesus took on himself. And which is why he was forsaken. And the reason I'm not is because of what Jesus has given to me, his righteousness. This is what we call this great exchange. He gets our sin and our punishment. We get his righteousness and are declared right and standing before God. We get this relationship with the Father. This is the good news of the resurrection. And this is what Jesus says to them. Look at Verse 44. <clears throat> They've given him this broiled piece of fish. He eats it. And then he says to them, these are my words that I will speak to you. Uh, Sorry, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is what I told you before uh, the death and resurrection. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's our Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Right? So he's like, why are you troubled? All the events of the last days are just what I told you what was going to happen and what the entire Old Testament said had to be, uh, be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. And that should just be our prayer every time we open our Bible, right? Because it's so easy to read it like they did. And if you don't see Jesus in the text every time or are looking for him or the implications of that, we miss the good news of the gospel. And he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. This is what Jesus has come for the forgiveness of sins. This is what his death was for. And the resurrection is the vindication that it is true, that it is right. We talked about um, a Good Friday service, that Jesus actually takes our debt. And our debt, uh, as we saw in the scriptures, is nailed to the cross with Christ, as, as Paul says. Right? So my debt has been paid for. But you have to have a receipt, right, showing that, that you've actually paid for something. If you try walking out of a store or a restaurant and you don't have a receipt and someone says, whoa, 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 did you buy that? Did you pay for that? You have to have something to prove that it's actually been paid for The resurrection is the receipt. The resurrection is, no, this is the proof that it's actually been paid for. It's the receipt. And so even in my own heart, I have to move my heart constantly from Good Friday to Easter. I have to constantly preach the good news to myself. It's why we gather here week after week after week. Because I'm a well-meaning hypocrite. I'm a bundle of of paradox, this bundle of doubt and belief existing in the same person, depending on the day, one more than the other, maybe. I love. Um, in in June, we're going to have a a guest preacher with us called Ray Ortland. So, Ray is uh, getting ready to retire from his church. He's he's a little bit on the older side as a pastor, but he's part of our Acts Twenty Nine network. Uh, he's going to be here, and he planted a church in Nashville, and they uh, called Emmanuel, and they have what they call the Emmanuel Mantra, right? This is the mantra for their church. I love this. It's in three parts. It goes like this: One, I'm a complete idiot. So far, so good. I think we've covered that bit already. Two, my future is incredibly bright. And three, anybody can get in on this. I love that, right? Because most of our life is a Good Friday experience rather than an Easter experience. It's hard. It's difficult. Romans 8 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with either longing, with groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. We live more in a Good Friday kind of experience a lot of the times. We're just groaning the effects of my own sin in my own life, the effects of other people's sin against me in my own life, just the systemic brokenness of the, of the world that we live in. We're just groaning and waiting all, with all of creation, waiting for God to come and make this right. And yet, that's what's promised to us, a bright future. What is the first words Jesus says to them when he comes into the room? Peace to you. Peace to you, that we can actually have peace, not just in the afterlife, but now. This month marks the uh, two-year anniversary of my father's death. Um, my father lived a, a, a fairly hard life growing up. Didn't grow up in a Christian home. Had abusive parents. Both died in their in their fifties uh, from alcohol-related disease. Both alcoholics. Um. Dad struggled with some of those things uh, in, his, in his early life as well. <laughs> Served two uh, terms in Vietnam. Saw and probably did horrible things there as war requires. Lived a hard life. Battled addictions, one of which eventually killed him as he died of, of lung cancer. And watching his um, life at the end, his physical life, um, was horrible. Horrible. Just a slow march toward death that nothing could stop. By the end, it, he looked like he was a strong man, a uh, you know, blue-collar guy, worked, worked uh, hard his whole life, hard-working guy, and um, really by the end looked like somebody in a concentration camp, like cancer just eating away uh, his physical body, this violent kind of death. And yet at the same time, my dad was really spiritually at peace, because he knew Jesus. He knew that this wasn't the end. It was the end of this. It was just the beginning of eternity. His future was incredibly bright. And he knew that. And so physically didn't die with a lot of dignity. This cancer kind of steals that away from us. But as a man of who he really was spiritually... And die to peace. Because that's really what matters. Right? Paul would say that. You can take this body and do whatever you want to. it. What does it really matter in the end? It is our soul. It is our spirit. And the good news is, is we get a new body just as Jesus had a new body. I want that because somehow he's able to like disguise himself and just walk through walls and things like that. That's pretty cool but the third part of that mantra is anybody can get in on this. Maybe your dark, maybe your doubts this morning aren't about Jesus. Maybe your doubts are about you. Your accessibility to Jesus. Would Jesus really have you? Maybe it's just too good to be true for me. True for other people. True for those good cleaned up kind of people. Not me though. I'm out of reach. You ever think about why the stone was rolled away? I mean, it's not like Jesus was in there, rose from the dead and was like, ah, I forgot about the stone. I'm just hanging out in there, like alive, but no one knows. Like he's just, he, I mean, he just literally walked through, he just appears to people after, after his resurrection body and his glorified body. He could have just like left the Angels didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. They roll it away to let us in. Amen. so that we can see so that we can get in, that anybody can get in on this. Um, I read this this week, and it's amazing. It says that God does not love us to the degree that we are like Jesus. Because if that were true, God wouldn't love us very much. (laughs) Because I'm not like Jesus a lot of the times. It says, he loves us to the degree that we are in Jesus. And this is what happens to us when we believe, when we accept who we are and who God is. When we receive that great exchange of our sin and his righteousness, the Bible says that we are in Christ. All the benefits that Christ gets from the Father, you and I now receive. All can get in on this. Because the truth is, you need Jesus just as much as Peter did, just as much as Thomas did. My dad, when he died, um, woke up in the presence of Jesus. And in that moment, he was just as loved, accepted, as Peter, as Thomas as Paul, when they died as martyrs, defending the resurrection. Because he was just as much in Christ as they were. And that's what matters. That we're in Christ. And how that happens is through his death and resurrection. And that's receiving that as good news. Receiving the bad news, that that actually says some things about us that we don't want to admit. But it's admitting that. It's swallowing our pride. It's coming to Jesus to make us clean. And believing the resurrection validates and vindicates all of these things. We come to the table every single week to declare these things to be true. We gather together. We sing these songs to declare these things to be true. Because we need reminded, because we too pray that prayer, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so we come and we receive the body of Christ broken for us, his blood shed for us. as this declaration of the gospel over us over and over again. And we'll do that now. The last time we were in this room and took communion together was Friday night. And it was dark in here. Um... It was silent in here. And we really asked uh, our posture in that to really be focusing on uh, our sin, the reason why Jesus had to die. Uh, and it was solemn and it was heavy and it was weighty. <laughs> and so we came to the to the table really with a good Friday posture. <laughs> um, but this morning we get to come with an Easter posture. And we will come as we sing. Um, we will come as we are invited to the altar, as we come to the table. Um, with the good news of what Jesus has done, and we come with all of those burdens, with all of that sin, and we just leave it there. We leave it there at the empty tomb. We leave it there at the foot of the cross. We come. We leave our burdens at the table, receiving the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us, nourishing uh, nourishing us this week as we go, The invitation, then, for for you, because this is a meal that Jesus actually instituted for his people. And so it's a meal just for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we just ask you to refrain from that. Um, But remember, anybody can get in on this. (laughs) And so today could be your first communion. Today might be the day that you've actually made that confession. But I believe. And then you make the confession. Just like I do, day after day after day, I believe, help my unbelief, like Peter, both simultaneously loving Jesus and betraying Jesus. And hearing his words, his questions to Peter, Do you love me? And Peter saying, You know I do. And so we're going to come and we're going to take communion together uh, as we do to celebrate. The death of Jesus, which is such a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's not weird. It's good news because it's in the death of Jesus that we get to then celebrate because of the resurrection. That's what makes Good Friday good, Easter. And so we'll come and do that this morning. Listen, if you're not a believer, if you're you're like, hey, this doubt and stuff, but I really want to believe, there'll be a few of us just here in the front row. So as people come to receive communion, just come up here and we'd be glad to, uh, just to pray with you and, and, and chat to you uh, about that as we come. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, just the goodness of Jesus to come in our confusion and in our doubts, in our troubled hearts to come to us, to offer us peace, to say, come, draw near, touch my hands, see these wounds, believe That these things were actually for the repentance and forgiveness of our sins. That we actually get to go out and proclaim that to all the nations. That you've given us your Holy Spirit to assure us of these things. To remind us of these things. To convict us of what is right and what is wrong. To walk a path uh, practicing the way of Jesus. Following our master. Is all out of your goodness, out of your grace to us. And so we come this morning with glad hearts. We come uh, with a burden that can be lifted off of us because uh, the burden of, of Jesus is light. Light because you carry all that needs to be carried for us. And so we come to the table um, proclaiming the death of Jesus, but also proclaiming that he is risen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's come and worship and stand again.